Welcome back to Sapphire Stories. On today's episode, we are featuring Lisa and Aaron Graves from Thrive Global. Lisa is the principal product designer at Thrive Global and is in charge of the many projects that Ariana Huffington and her company launches. This episode is great if you're looking to build a product, wanting to learn the ins and outs and how to create the right feature so that you can acquire users for what you are building. Aaron uh, introduced himself and his background. Uh, Lisa, could you take a few minutes and introduce yourself and your background? Sure. Um, my name's Lisa. I have been doing product work since probably 99 or 98, so I guess around 20 years. Um, now I'm principal product designer for Thrive Global where we are um, creating habit change, behavior change apps to get people to sleep better and improve little habits that can help them deal with stress like this. So um, pretty rewarding work. Um, I have um, a bunch of um, companies. One, The first one was KidCash, which is also very similar to Thrive in that it's is uh, it's like a behavior change kind of habit um, incentivization for children to listen to messaging around devices and budgeting and stuff like that. <clears throat> and then I started on Pepperizer with Aaron. I don't know if he went into it at all. No. It'll come up. Uh, yeah, it'll come up. And uh, we've been working on that together for four years. About, yeah. Um, it's just been, it's amazing to work with a professional like Aaron. Uh, it's really, it's great. And then um, an incident happened and I got pulled into politics and um, creating a voter research platform that we are launching. We have beta out and it's still launching features, but that's called voteinorout.com because um, there's no one place to really find information on candidates and so much news happens so quickly that it's important to remember what happens in connection to which candidates. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. And I think it's great, especially from the other interviews we've had today, is like you guys are both pretty focused on product. Um, and I think that's such an integral part of any business, um, just how you, know, you bring a product into the marketplace, how you test it, how you make it viable. Um, yep. Aaron, uh, could you talk about, you know, your first company that you worked with or that you started um, in terms of your relationship with starting a product? Yeah, sure. I think the one that really immediately comes to mind is a company called WeSpire. Um, so I joined when I think the company had a small seed fund um, and uh, the CEO and founder there uh, started off as sort of a how green are you quiz because she had a, a child who had an allergic reaction to some food and started reading labels and then started thinking about what goes into the food and then started thinking about sort of broad implications of that and it led her to sustainability. Um, but there wasn't there. So there was an idea and there was a little bit of funding, but there wasn't a product there. Um, and I just immediately, you know, I'm very much the sort of person where conversations are key to me um, and talking with people who are feeling the brunt of a problem or who are trying to start a business there. And we started riffing on this idea of being able to, uh, go beyond assessment and actually get people to do something. Like, how do you get someone to take action? Um, and so for me, you know, that, that product that we designed uh, really started in those conversations of, you know, we're people who have needs or we know people who have needs. How do we, how do we get people to go do something? Um, and then it's sort of this stew of all the ideas you've encountered, the people you're talking to, the products you're using, um, games and books and media and it all sort of gets still down until you sort of see a connection between you're like what if I could get this thing that's happening somewhere connected with this problem um, and that for me finding that that spark and that connection in those conversations and putting things together is sort of the core of a, of a product the, the sort of germination phase and so what we did and this is you know <laughs> this phrase sounds a little silly and dated now it was sort of that gamification moment um, where people were talking about taking those concepts from games and putting it into your life um, and so I, you know, borrowed on one of those concepts and we built a sustainability platform, uh, which immediately got traction in places where uh, natural resources were expensive. 
um, and developed it further into a more enterprising platform. So I, I can go to more depth, you know, in any part that, that interests you out of that. Um, but really that, that product journey was, you know, sort of phase one problem under like stating a problem phase two, this sort of creative stew, um, and then just getting excited and working hard and building a prototype. And, and there are the phases after that I, I view as sort of very different. Um, but that's sort of the, the germ of it for me. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely dive deeper into those, but before we do, uh, Lisa, um, how you got into product and your initial product journey? Um, I started in marketing and building websites and realizing that how you lay um, the visuals out can get a person to do a type of action and the different combinations of those elements can increase the numbers of people that hit a button. And then after a real, uh, after a while and, and developing all of these muscles, you start to think of, well, how can you better use those mechanisms to get people to do better things? Um, so I guess it's, it's just becoming a more morally ethical designer and looking for um, things that might frustrate you out in the world or that you see are common problems and trying to think of what is the experience you could build for them to try to solve some of those problems. And so, you know, what I think is super interesting is like even a lot of people watching this um, live is they have an idea um, and they want to create something. So before we get into like the later parts of the product journey, like what's when you have an idea and you want to create something, what are the first steps that you guys take um, to make sure that, you know, you're doing the right thing and it's the right path to go down to building out a product? Um, Aaron, to start off with. Sure. I think um, one of the things I think a lot of people overlook early on is doing com uh, competitive research, so to speak, um, because any idea that you've had, uh, there's a sort of impulse for people to be like, oh, my idea is special, you know, I need to protect it, I need to get people to sign NDAs. And I think that's a common impulse, and I think it's often uh, can impede what you're trying to do. So I think the most important thing is to think about, okay, someone else probably already encountered this, right? You have, uh, and so your real, the resource that you have at the beginning is excitement. You have, you have excitement, you have proficiency at, at building something, you're connecting people. Um, and so really think of it as bringing your passion to bear on a problem space and not, I have this secret idea that I need to protect and build in secret. So the first thing I think is, is, is talk about it and understand other people who have tried to work on this problem and perhaps failed or succeeded and really understanding that. And then when you, when you put yourself in the, in the sort of the context of people who are thinking about this problem space, then you can start to see, oh, here's my angle or here's what I think someone else missed or here's what I think there's an opportunity or here's something that was really close and failed because of that. And then when you have that perspective, that's when you're ready to start actually building something or talking to people. So I think, I think that contextualizing yourself among all the people who have thought about this problem, I think is, is the kernel of the ideas that are going to be successful. Yeah, so that feels like sort of step zero for me. No, absolutely. I mean, I've also seen that. Um, sometimes, you know, people come up with an idea and they try to protect it initially too much. And then, you know, the thing is, it's all about the execution. Um, absolutely. And the ability absolutely. to make that product. So completely agree with you there. Yeah. And then I would say that the very next step after that, when, you, when you've sort of done that diligence and have that point, is uh, connect with someone who has your problem and get, you know, see if you can just, uh, so there's this famous, I, I believe it's Paul Graham essay about doing things that don't scale, right? And his, his whole point in that is when you're starting out, don't think how to manufacture a million widgets. Make two widgets by hand and then give them to someone and see what they do with them. And, uh, and great. And, and maybe it takes you four hours to make every one of these things. But getting it out there fast and thinking about that keeps you agile, keeps you small and gets that feedback. So, you know, a lot of times I've seen people prototype products and going back to Respire, what, what Susan was doing there is she was using online quizzes, you know, off the shelf quizzes and just getting people and but the people who filled out that quiz to figure out how green they were, those were her first, first customers. And the people who saw them were like, wow, this is incredible. This is gonna be huge. You have an opportunity for impact here. Those were the people who were the early adopters, who were giving her feedback, connecting her to investors. And so just taking that, getting something so small into someone's hands, using the things that are already around you was, uh, was the differentiator between her and perhaps other people who said, oh, I'm gonna secure investment and build something that costs a couple million dollars, so. Absolutely, and then um, Lisa, uh, but how about for you? Um, do you have any other advice in terms of when you initially get started, um, what that approach would be? For product? Um, 
I think I have a very healthy respect for the fact that it's very hard to get attention from people. And, you know, there's that saying in marketing that if you have a new company, a person needs to hear your name eight times before they even hear it. So knowing how hard it is to get people's attention, um, I try to think of what's the, the core solution? What's like how, how far down and simple can you boil it down? And then what type of incentives can you beg into that initial um, um, entrance to your product to grab as many people as possible? And how many, um, try to get as many small points as from them to, from the initial entrance to the answer, but also along the way, add in social proof, add in um, incentives, um, what is the value they're getting out of it? So it's kind of this like layering of, it's almost like um, when people organize things really well, if <laughs> you like make a box that's very neat and it's, people can kind of grasp the whole concept within a second and there's a lot of um, things that they want from this and a lot of people can talk about it, then I think you're good to start um, sketching something out. And especially what Aaron said about looking at the competition, a lot of people do get that right. But products die, um, what do they say, death by a thousand cuts. And so there's a lot of ways for a product to die. And I think if, if you don't get that pathway from, you know, entrance to solution, right, with the right amount of incentives and, and the right journey, then there's a lot of ways your product could die without even even knowing what that is. Got it. And then, like, you know, it, it seems like you're both saying that have a few things, um, do them well, and then test them initially uh, to see if it works don't make it too complicated and then just get out to market and then get that real user feedback because often i feel like as entrepreneurs we kind of live in our own heads we think something is a great solution for us but you know a lot of the times it's not for the mass market um but sometimes you're working hard on something you're working on your product you're not getting the traction that you thought you would do you guys have any advice in terms of how do you know to either keep going or how do you know that you should stop now? Mm. Um, Lisa, we can start with you with this one. Well, um, Aaron and I have worked in two companies together and he's, I've usually stayed on longer, but mostly we, we work on a lot of projects that don't go anywhere, even when fully um, funded, you know? Um, you could be in a multi-million dollar company working on a product that's not track, you know, tracking. Um, but they have the money behind it to keep it going. And they have the staff to keep it going, even if it's not doing anything. I've experienced this in most of the jobs that I've been at. Um, you know, how to do it with your own. I feel like there are so many variables, too. Um, I, I feel like most of us probably have read The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And you might have a very good product, but unless it kind of hits those influencers or that, that pathway to that hockey curve, um, you know, you could try different ways. Like right now with the voting platform, we're attacking all sides. We're talking to influencers on one side. We're trying to get into the press. I'm going through Reddit chat rooms. We're doing Instagram. We're doing Facebook. And it's funny because you do get traction, but they're all different types of traction. And the people all react differently even after. Um, the people that hit my platform after coming in from Instagram spend much less time than the people that come in from Reddit. Because of the, the type of user that's in Reddit, they're, they're used to digesting text and clicking and testing on things. So they're already like warmed up. They're primed. <clears throat> for exploring a platform that is a research-based platform. Instagram, they're so used to, they're primed to just do something quick. So even if they open up a website, they're just going to close it. So um, it's really, it's, it's about learning and it's about um, getting to the right people too, I think, um, if you don't have the money um, backing you. And then, um, Aaron, just to kind of go off of that for to what Lisa alluded to, it's like often... You have something that's not working, and then you, you know some uh, sometimes that these large companies are already staffed up. They have the money behind it, and they just don't pull the plug in time. Can you give us like a real world example of where if that ever happened to you, and like what the signal was when they should have stopped, but how long they pushed it to? Pulling the plug on a product. <laughs> uh, let me let me think about that one for a second. Um, or a feature. Yeah, here's 
let me take just sort of a slightly different angle on this. Um, one thing I think that is, I think one of the hardest lessons I've learned. So in my, in my twenties, I had a lot of, uh, really tough, you know, conversations, gigs, companies, uh, product launches, um, trying to figure out this relationship of like, how do we know what's going to work? How do we know, how do we figure out the right thing to do? And it also manifests itself as, as what should we do about this problem? How do we get more users? Um, and in retrospect, I think a lot of those problems come back to failure to separate between problem definition and measurement and solution design. And that light bulb turning on for me, uh, where you say, okay, let me really as accurately as I can define and measure what's the problem people are having right now? What problem am I solving? And getting that crystal clear and putting it off to one side, right? And then saying, what problem do I design that, or what solution do I design for that problem? Um, and being able to separate those two in your mind, um, every time I've seen a product go sideways and become dysfunctional, uh, there is a element of uh, sort of worshiping the solution that has come to you as a result of what you think the business needs to do or what you think your customers are telling you or the way you conceived of the problem at, at, at the beginning. And every product I've seen that's in a death spiral is to some degree stuck in a feedback loop of this is how it needs to exist. This is, you know, how we need to iterate on that existing product. And when I, when I see that feedback loop, where you're taking your cues from, oh, engagement with this feature is down, right? We need to promote this feature. Instead of saying, what's the problem we're measuring and how, are how is our solution being applied to that problem? When, you, when, when the product becomes an echo chamber and becomes a, a self-sustaining feedback loop of, of product changes to make the solution <laughs> itself successful, that is when I think companies are sort of, uh, or our product is, is headed, headed out to pasture. Um, so that's that's really how I think about it. But but conversely, that can be freeing, right? If you understand, um, people have food on their plates and they just can't possibly get it get it to their mouths, right? Um, and we've tried, you know, this thing and this thing, and we finally have invented, you know, the sport, but people aren't catching on. You know, you can iterate there with tons and tons and tons of failures. But when you're when you have that very concrete problem that you're measured and you and you understand what people are trying to do that's when uh, I think a lot of failure, a lot of iteration, a lot of backtracking is actually really helpful. That's right. And, and then to kind of build off of that, Lisa, um, you know, in product, I've, you know, experienced it personally. I have a lot of friends that have product companies. Um, often, you know, when you start working on something and it's, you're not getting the traction as quickly as possible, people start, you know, focusing on different metrics, different numbers. Have you ever seen how that off, how that's affected, you know, the building of a product um, when, you know, you have so many numbers and so much data going around, you don't know what to focus on. And then you start focusing on any, you know, whatever is growing. Can you talk to that? Or have you ever been through that? I think um, it takes a little bit of understanding human behavior, psychology, sociology to understand what number you should be looking at because oftentimes you have to kind of do an exercise of, well, the person's bored here, probably that's why they're dropping off right here. But if you're not kind of like thinking in that way, then you might be like, here's a bunch of numbers and this one's moving the most, let's look at that one. And you might actually be ignoring um, some psychological reason that's the true problem that's hitting that number. Um, so I've seen that. Um, you know, I used to work for a dating company, so we were very metrics driven um, and trying to get people to interact with one another was fun <laughs> um, in a quality kind of way. That's even harder. <laughs> but um, yeah, they would oftentimes we'd have a lot of arguments around what numbers we were looking at and paying attention to because I would see some sort of little anomaly that wouldn't have caught anybody else's attention, but it was at a point in the experience that I thought was critical. And I was like, if you get that point wrong, then they may get to that next point. They may get to the other point, but like their, their confidence has already dropped by there. And you're yeah. like kind of on that tailspin of like their patience, you know, it's like you, that you got knocked. It's like, I'm not leaving right now, but I'm not feeling great. And then it's that third thing that they hit that they exit and everyone focuses on that exit when it was really like 
two points before that. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen that so much. We we work with a lot of app companies to help them acquire users and whatnot, and like they're so focused on the end retention number, where like the end retention number you know builds off a bunch of other criteria before it. That's yeah. basically someone like voting yes or no if I like your product. But they're right. so you know hell bent on that last number that it often skews um, certain metrics. Mm-hmm. But you know now what I'd like to touch on is when you know the more personal journey of the two of you. Like when did you guys start working together? How did you guys meet? Um, Aaron. Yeah. Um, so um, how we met. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. So Lisa and I, uh, I. I joined a company Lisa was already at, and I will never forget this moment. Um, I had unpacked my desk and I was sitting there and, you know, was setting up my keyboard and, uh, all of a sudden I hear the freight elevator open and, uh, this woman comes limping out of the elevator and, uh, a bunch of people stand up there like, are you okay? What's happening? And she's, uh, pushing this bike and limping with the right leg. And she's like, yeah, I got hit by a car. It's not a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) That's all Aaron had to know. And yet here we are still together. (laughs) I was like, I found, I found my people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so we, uh, we were at the company together for a couple of years. Um, and I think we, uh, you know, so I was working in tech, she was working in, in product design and, you know, at a hundred person company, you have a lot of meetings and you meet a lot of people. Um, and, you know, there were a couple of meetings I was in with Lisa where she would say something and I'd be like, wow. She really nailed that. And you'd see like other people in the room just sort of not react. Um, <laughs> and I immediately, you know, within a week of meeting her, I'm like, this is the most criminally underrated person I've ever met in my life. Like there is a, a really incredibly talented product designer walking amongst us. And there are many people who have not noticed. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I knew very quickly that um, just, and it was, it was great to sort of be in that situation where, um, you know, we weren't sort of like thrown into the crucible immediately. Um, but I had a lot of opportunity to see her and see her compared to other people around her and realize that um, she's incredibly talented at what she does. Um, but also just so humble about it. Um, and yeah, very good. My same day of meeting Aaron, um, he's like, hi, I now work here. It's my first day. And I'm like, I noticed you have a suitcase. He's like, I also just moved to New York today <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I need help finding an apartment. And I'm like, I like this guy. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And what, what, what company was that at? CrowdTap. Uh, yeah, CrowdTap. Okay. And then you guys worked there for how long? Jeez, I was there, what, uh, two, two and a half, two years, approximately? I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Around that. Did you guys move to the next venture together as well? or? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron's like, Want to work for Ariana Huffington? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah, so we went to uh, went to Thrive together, and I, I worked at the company through the launch. Um, so oversaw tech for um, launching the the media portal, um, and similarly takes a behavior change platform. Um, and yeah, it was one of the one of the wildest and most exciting rides I've ever been on. Uh, oh God, Aaron, yeah. I've never seen him look like such shit. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you look like you crawled out of a hole. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a little rough there for a while, um, but I'm still there. I, I enjoy it now, now that it's a larger org and it's more like a regular startup. Yeah. What was like the original, like, pro- like what were they trying to make initially and how is that different from today? <laughs> well, yeah. So- we launched my products in two months, right? Yeah, I remember being in sort of like my my get up to speed meeting um and uh, they were sort of walking through a list and they're like okay so well these are the 11 products and i was like okay all right so we'll put together sort of like a quarterly roadmap over the next couple of years they're like no these are for launch <laughs> um yeah and there wasn't a tech team yet um so but like honestly that's the kind of i, I may be a little bit of a crazy person sometimes like i i like the super high pressure ambitious stuff um, so it was a really fun and exciting challenge to have, you know, really a well-recognized name um, and be able to sift through some of the best resumes I've seen and get that team together and pull in some of the best consultants and uh, really just, we just war-roomed it. Um, 
and it was uh, it was a wild ride. Um, but yeah, it was very much um, you know. So the, the the key was sort of the media portal um, because a lot of it was social media sort of thought leadership um, and writing a lot of long form articles. You know, sort of drawing from a lot of the HuffPo model. Um, and so getting that sort of media platform up in a you know, sustainable long-term low-maintenance CMS was, was sort of the key. But then it was, the rest of it was sort of a, a, you know, a, a shotgun spread of various products, um, you know, including like Alexa skills, meditation products, behavior change, habit formation, um, and being able to work with you know, substantial but you know, some level constrained resources and prioritize among these tiny products was really a sort of exciting challenge. So from that like suite of products that were thrown at you when you started there, how did that process go in terms of which ones worked or uh, which ones didn't and um, what were your learnings from that? Yeah, so the thing, the thing I would really take away from that whole process is, uh, you know, especially when you're dealing, and this, this advice more applies to you know, this is sort of outside the garage product design. You know, this is when you've got uh, a little bit more of a formed identity and launching a product. Um, I think if you've had any exposure to the marketplace, you're receiving feedback about what your strengths are and what you're bringing to the table. And I think the most important thing is, is to at some level acknowledge that and, you know, have your creativity, have the things you're going to try, but understand what your core strength is and make sure that's accounted for in your product. Because people, people are telling you they want something from you, right? And in that case... It, it was the uh, it was the ability to speak to people in writing to say here's how to manage stress here's what you should be doing about sleep here's how it affects performance so so the CMS um, and the media property was in my mind even though the, the company and the spread was hugely ambitious that was the thing that I knew was going to be still be here in two years that wasn't a bet for us that was infrastructure that need to be in place just like a company needed email a media-centric company, you know, making the transition to products needs a way to, to talk to people. So there was, that was really where I focused a, like a lot of the consulting dollars and, and the, the team on initially. Um, and then I applied more of sort of a wait and see approach to a lot of the other products. So we uh, used a single contractor to launch an Alexa skill. Um, we had uh, a lot of design sessions and sort of launched prototypes of behavior change platform. Um, and then a couple other sort of smaller properties that we experimented with more. So I think, think thinking about, you know, thinking of it as a, a finite chunk of resources and you place those bets uh, according to what you've been taught by the market in the past, plus your confidence for what's going to happen in the future and being very cognizant of, of that mentality rather than saying, oh, well, we need an iPhone app because everyone's on their phones and that costs this many people, right? That, that sort of like working backwards uh, mentality, I think can cause a lot of misallocation of resources. So thinking of in terms of where have I received reception from the market, allocating resources and the things you know are going to be safe, then having a slice for what you think should be uh, your long shots or your you know, hypothesis you're testing with the company. So, And Lisa, can you just tell the audience if they don't know already, like what currently Thrive Global is? Thrive Global is mostly the media platform where there are a lot of thought leaders and scientists having conversations around sleep and movements right now, how to de-stress during the coronavirus pandemic, things of this type of nature. However, um, we also do corporate wellness. So it's coming in and giving workshops around um, what are your personal tools to improve your life in small steps. Um, paired up with the content and soon behavior change app. Um, however, it's, I think there's a, there's a core problem with behavior change apps um, that I speak about a lot internally you know, at Thrive, which is you could have the best um, behavior change app there is. A Virgin Pulse makes a really good one, but at the end of the day, people don't really prioritize their health. And at also, it's hard for people to open up apps because there's so many things grabbing for your attention that I think any, time, any product that gets built nowadays needs to think about reaching people outside of apps. Um, can you get into people's reminders? Can you get into their calendar? Because I think it's, or their, maybe their Slack, even Slack is hard, you know? So like, how do you get into those core 
moments of their day that they really do prioritize because there's not a lot of them and there's a lot of competition to get in there, even when it's something as important as your sleep. Yeah. If I could build on that a little bit, um, we faced a very similar problem when we were getting uh, my sustainability company, WeSpire, off the ground. It was the same conversation. It's like, you know, everyone's too busy. No one's checking their email. We want to get people to start taking these actions that will get them to lower their impact on the planet. Um, And, you know, we, through a lot of hard work and thinking, came up with a strategy that was really effective. Um, And sort of two key early points in that were we said, we launch a website, which is a how green are you quiz, no one's going to go click it. So let's find people who are our super users who are engaged, who are already trying to do this work and act as a multiplier for them. And the light bulb we had was the green teams, sustainability groups at large companies. Those people are already, and we found these people already had spreadsheets of actions to be taken. They had little reward programs. So we found those people, again, going back to an earlier point about like competitive research, and it's not really competitive research, right? It's never... Like, no one ever, like, if you're Pepsi and Coke, you're fighting over market share, right? But, but most of these companies, it's about identifying people who are on the same path as you and finding ways to enable them. And so we found those green teams at companies and we took their programs. We built a flexible, all the, all the product did was, was a list of things to do on your phone. You checked it off and it gave you points. But we found those companies that already had those programs going and connected with them and took their programs online. And then they were our messengers going out there and beating down the doors and getting people. And then the other, uh, the sort of the second realization, we really only had two, two like mind-blowing realizations over the course of this whole company, and they were enough, right? The, the first one was that we needed to find the people who were already running sustainability programs. Second was that people love food. And so the, the action we added, which was, was take your colleagues out to a vegetarian lunch, that was the best predictor of people sticking onto the platform more than anything else we did was the lunches. And so we went really hard on that action. And so then all these, just by putting that action and promoting it and promoting it to the green teams at companies, those people all grabbed their colleagues. They all took them out for a vegetarian lunch and they talked about single, they talked about the platform. Some of those people grabbed the app and then their first action was to take people out to lunch. And we literally, we literally built the product over vegetarian lunches. Um, so finding those ways, and if you try and say, oh, we're going to build a phone app, we're going to put out in the app store, people are going to download it, or we're going to email people, or we're going to traditional marketing, or whatever. Uh, I mean, some products do catch on that way, and you can do it. But if you find people who are already trying to solve this problem, already working on this problem, you connect with them, and you enable them, and you, you catch, a, catch a ride on that energy that those people are bringing out, that, in my mind, that's the easy way to get a product out. Yeah, no, I actually think that's like super excellent advice. I just want to like reiterate it to the audience. It's often the best things in marketing are like marketing features built into the product. Um, it's a product doing your marketing for you. Because I mean, we run a marketing agency and we see this all the time. Someone comes up with a product and they're like, use this cash to make it work. But inherently, you can't just funnel millions of dollars into something and make it work, as you guys know from your previous ventures. So I thought that lunch, you know, the thing you guys would do with the vegetarian lunches was great. And Lisa, also to your point, I just wanted to re, you know, iterate it for the audiences, be in places where other people are not. The thing, one of the things you said might sound so simple to the audience is like, be on their calendar. But the thing is, there's not that much competition on the calendar. The only things you have on your calendar are the things that, you know, are important to you. Whereas if you're in the app store alone, there's millions of apps to be had. You can get on the calendar if you can get maybe even on Alexa in the early days, if you get on the Apple team, getting to places initially where there's no competition, even as simply as like having your app or website integrate into somebody's calendar, it's like crazy good advice. So I just wanted to touch on that um, a little bit more. So um, no, that's uh, so let me talk more about now what you guys are um, working on now. Um, Lisa, you had mentioned go in or, in or out. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Um, so it, it starts with a sad story. Um, I found out that my friend that I went to college 20 years ago with, who had a teenage, uh, teenager at the time, her daughter was in the classroom during the Parkland shooting and um, got pushed across the hall. But her best friend, uh, Alyssa Aldehef, was in that room. She didn't make it. Um, and so 
you know, I have a friend who now joining me online, kind of trying to get people to get gun reform going and stuff like that. Um, like, just, I don't know, I was watching them try to vote people out of Senate, and they were passing around, it was a typed paper with names on it that had little Y's and N's next to it. And I was like, that's a good thought, but nobody will ever save that image, read that image, remember those names on election day. You need a place where you can save information on the day that you get it and keep it there for November 3rd and have it organized to that candidate, to that president, to that you know um, senator, so that when November 3rd comes up, you have this kind of pile of information that you can now make a more informed decision when voting. And so that's when um, I kind of sketched out a really simple uh, draft of it. But then when I came to work for Thrive, um, some people there were like, well, we'll help you build this. And I, I was like, well, if I have an iOS engineer, a backend, then I'm going to really design this to be very effective. So then I ended up making it so kind of complex that then they couldn't do it. <laughs> and I had to find a way to find a, an engineering company to do it. But um, yeah, it's great. You can just uh, in one click save uh, an article like today. Um, Spike Lee, you know, tells Trump, uh, don't be racist. It's making it the, the lives of Asian Americans uh, is putting them in danger. So I could save that article and, and it gets saved under Donald Trump minorities until November 3rd. And now I have this entire long list just from coronavirus there. Um, but and then once you vote someone in or out, they get put on a list. It gets emailed to you on November 3rd. So I know that as a product designer, if you just tell people here is uh, an instruction of what to do, like they're way more likely to do it. So if I want to have more people vote, literally just telling them where to go, when to go, here's your list. Like that would get a lot of people feeling that they have a reason. They've now been informed. They um, have instructions and they can just go. So, you know, trying to um, enable people to be the change that they're seeking by being informed and having that readily available. So. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great idea. I always find it so interesting that you know, when we go to vote, there's so little information to be consumed in like a, an aggregated way. And then, um, so I think that's fantastic. And before we open up to just Q&A, um, Aaron, also, uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I've got a sort of a mix of uh, freelance consulting work sort of during day. And then uh, pretty much all of my spare time is taken up by the uh, Pepperizer project. Um, so, yeah, putting in a, a lot of hours on that is enough to keep me very, very busy. That's great. So before I take up, you know, any more of you guys' time with my questions, I just wanted to open it up to the audience. Um, you know, these are great individuals. If you have any questions on products or companies um, to ask. So let me uh, open it up to the audience. Please raise your hand if you have a question and then we'll uh, give you permission to ask through the Zoom. Okay. Thomas? Yeah, I'm here. I can All right. Pick. Yep. Jay? All right. A lot of talk. Hi, thanks guys. So I have uh, one question for uh, both of you. Um, how do you know when to go? Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yes. Okay. So like um, Anish was talking about when you need to stop, but when do you know, like based off of your experience, when did you know you needed to double down on a product? And then Lisa, I wanted to know the app that you're talking about. Is it built? What's the name of it? How do I find it? So again, when do you know when to double down on a product or an app? And then what is the the political thing, Lisa? Is it out there? Can I find it? Sure. Um, it is. It's in beta right now. It's uh, We decided to make it mobile web um, since it is so hard to download apps. So if you go to voteinorout.com, you can get to it. And there's most of the functionality is there now. Um, thanks. Do you want to go, Aaron? When? Yes, yeah, I just missed the first part of the question. I was <laughs> my first laptop crashed, and I was switching to reserve laptop. Oh, um, the question. I think the question was. Sorry. The first part of my question, Aaron, was, and you talked about, and you guys were very clear on kind of when you need to kind of back out of a product or an app, but. 
I wanted to see if you guys could give examples of this happening, but really theoretically and practically, when do you double down on an app? When do you double down on a product or an idea? Yeah, so I'll give you an example. Um, so during the early days at WeSpire, uh, we built sort of a first version of the app that, as I sort of described, without going too far into it, but um, it was a one-time checklist. So it was things like installing a, a high-efficiency water heater or shower head or other things. Um, so that app got some traction, but not a ton. Uh, and we had one point where everyone was like, strange, the auto de the direct deposits didn't go through this week. And we're like, oh, weird bank error. We're giving you guys paper checks. That's because the investment round was landing that weekend and we needed to buy ourselves two days worth of time. So um, that was a moment where we really hit a lot of adversity, but were deeply committed to the business and did in fact double down by sort of revising the product and, and so forth. But the way we knew to do that was really two things. The first was that we had seen traction from customers. We had heard from people back. Yes, you're solving a problem. We're excited about a version two of this. When you start getting that feedback from people of people saying, yes, I want this, I want a better version of this, that, that sort of validation, and it can come from uh, an angel investor, a seed investor, uh, a first customer, someone you trust, when you get that, um, that's, that's sort of the signal. And the second one is, you yourself, when you hear that, being like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to push through. And I, I can't explain or sort of quantify that. But when, when that feedback from that person hits you in a way like, yes, I need to keep this product alive. When that happens, you keep going. But when you get that feedback and you're kind of like, okay, great. But like, I only made a few hundred dollars on the, if you react that way to what you're getting, uh, I think that means your heart's not in it or it's not right or something's not right about it. And so I know that's kind of a weird new agey answer to the question, but it's, it's that connection between people telling you yes and that hitting you in a way that matters and is meaningful. Um, and when your product is truly done or truly defeated, the market will tell you that, right? <laughs> because you will run out of money. People will leave, like, ab real failure is unmistakable. But that moment um, where you're making that decision, that is really, that is a test of your commitment to what it is you're doing and that is up to you. Thank you. Um, next we have Brie. Hello. Hi Brie. Hi, thank you both for sharing your time and knowledge with us. My question is, um, you mentioned there is a component through the user customer experience um, with sociology and psychology. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, you know, what are you currently reading or who are you following that could continue to elaborate on those ideas? Ah, well, um, most of it is muscle memory. You know, I talked, we do heuristic um, user research, so you'll actually hear how people are um, reacting to your products. Um, you know, when they're, whenever, whenever they're complaining, that's really, um, that's a lot of, uh, it's very valuable to me. Um, or if it makes them angry, you know, like the, the types of reactions that you get from people or, um, when they don't see the solution, when you've designed something, that's another thing. So like a lot of these um, kind of go into your muscle memory. And when mm -hmm. you're building something new, you might remember that and you get better at it. You get better at getting positive feedback over time. However, I started out as a biology major um, in Brooklyn. I went to Brooklyn College and so I was always interested in that. And I listened to a lot of podcasts and I mean, I, I kind of more like the uh, well-produced, like, Freakonomics and Radio Lab, and mm -hmm. I read, I subscribe to National Geographic, but, and I watch a lot of documentaries, so I think I'm just always, I'm very ADHD with my entertainment, but I like to um, have a lot of fields of knowledge coming in at all times. And, you know, at Thrive, too, we've had a, a few PhDs come work with us, and having those kind of deep conversations around how people react to products too also goes into the bank. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, there's a lot of things that you could read or listen to um, all over. It's just more about um, as a UX designer, observing the world around you. And it could even be within the, the patterns of behavior that you notice within your friends and family, you know, hmm. um, for instance, I'm very liberal and I get into a lot of conversations with conservatives. And so it's funny because I start to notice these patterns where like they stop listening or something I'll say that opens them up more. And it's like, what was it? What was it that I said? You know, and you try to break these things down um, and then try to kind of translate that into the types of products that you're building. The same thing happened with vote in or out. Um, after, after looking at Facebook for many years, I realized it's this direct communication that's hurting everybody. Because even if you have a text message conversation with your significant other, that could go down the rails in two, two messages, you know, because everyone reads things defensively and they, they assume things. And so having this easy way to, for two people arguing to communicate with one another, another I think, drives a lot of the uh, dissonance that you see happening in Facebook. So um, it was a product decision for vote in or out to take commenting out. I don't allow them to comment. <laughs> they, uh -huh. If you want to reply to someone, you have to fact check them. You have to pretty much summarize what um, your point is and then add a link, a resource of what you're referring to. Because that's also missing from these conversations on Facebook. If like I someone also, will, yeah, go ahead. There's just two little things I wanted to sort of throw in there too. Um, one is I think when you're, when you're thinking about what to read, it's very important yeah. to understand, do I have an incremental, am I trying to solve an incremental problem or a transformative problem? Because there's a lot of things you can read about button color, placement, a lot of uh, UX design, and those things are worth their weight in gold for Google, but matter very little mm -hmm. in something early stage. Uh, whereas things that are more transformative and looking for advice in that, uh, it's a different class of problem. Um, mm -hmm. And then in terms of recommendations, if you haven't read Paul Graham's essays, they are fantastic. They're really fantastic. And so I think that's that's the thing I recommend the most for people to go read is, is, is essays, a lot of the earlier ones. Um, and then the, the second recommendation is a little contrarian sometimes, and it can be a little little spicy, but Signal versus Noise uh, by uh, people at 37 Signals, you know, Basecamp, um, is another really great resource uh, to get you to think about, they think more about how to work, whereas Paul Graham's things, if you if you could digest everything in Paul Graham's essays, um, you know, and sort of magically get it all into your head, uh, yeah. I think that would be transformative. <laughs> Awesome. And then uh, it was Paul Ram. Ram is just R-A-M? Uh, Paul Ram. Graham, like Ram crackers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Sweet. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys. Like, that's just, I love all this information. Super helpful. And I'm so excited to continue to dive into it. That's awesome. I hope you enjoy Thank it. Thank you. Thanks. I think we have time for one more. Uh, Janet? Yep. Oh, Janet, you're good. Okay. Hi. Um, so I actually work with um, Thomas and Anish on some of our, I manage our internal app products and um, kind of one of the things that we've been discussing right now. And I thought um, since Lisa, you mentioned that vote in or out, you decided to go with a mobile website versus a mobile app. And sometimes we have these like really great fun ideas. And um, a lot of times we're making games and we kind of, do you have that discussion among our team when we're like, oh, does this really need to be an app though? Or should we do a website? And so I was wondering if you could kind of like walk us through your steps or like why you would choose like the benefits of each. Yeah. I mean, just at the core, like for me to try to grab someone from Reddit, they're never going to download an app. But if I put a link right in that comment, all they have to do is click on it. And so much of the features of vote in or out, you could see logged out. Um, Aaron can also speak to um, going mobile first, mobile web first, and then um, how you also hacked it so that we can have an iOS app. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So this is, I think, where my development time uh, comes in handy. Um, so for the project Lisa and I have been working on, uh, we've been developing it for uh, four years. Um, and I've done all the development myself uh, from the interface to the app to the server. Um, my spicy take right now is that the world has not caught up to how good the web has gotten. People still overestimate the gap between a native app and what you can do with mobile web. Um, and 
it is, if you understand React or another front-end framework and are good at it, uh, the things you can create and then just put into a, uh, into a web container app, um, it's fantastic. People don't realize they're using a, a mobile web app if you do it right. Um, so, the, the, so the key differentiation for me is if you really need things that are, like if, if there's some core to your interaction that needs that really, really real-time interaction, like, like a, a drawing game app, for example, right? Or, um, you know, photo manipulation. But even those things, you can have native components coexisting alongside mobile web. So I would really say, um, if you're having these sort of discussions, find someone who really understands React or uh, Vue or one of the other frameworks and talk through them with what's possible and investigate that route first. Um, because the cost of, you know, as soon as you, as soon as you go native, you need an Android developer, you need an iOS developer, and you need a server developer to stitch them all together. And if you go mobile web, you can have one person do all three. So I, I would strongly recommend everyone right now to spec it out as a mobile web app and then understand what are the things, where are the places where this breaks and can I bridge that gap with a, a mobile web wrapper and a few native components in it? And if you fail both those tests, you're in a very small minority there, I think. So I, don't th I think a lot of people aren't thinking that way right now, but I, I am very confident that shift, that shift is going to change because just the quality, has, it's there now. I also have one piece of data that might change your mind. <laughs> um, it costs $1 to get person to a mobile web uh, app, and it costs $8 to get them to a native app when marketing. So there you go. <laughs> that is friction in, in dollars. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, I, I was also wondering, do you see any difference in like retention or repeat users on the web versus a mobile app? That I feel like I haven't really, I, I, I don't feel like I've seen enough data recently um, to compare and give you an answer on. Do you, Aaron? Here's, uh, I don't have a hard number on hand, but here's what I would say. Like uh, mobile app, there's selection bias in your mo mobile app cohort, right? Those people have had to hop through more hurdles. Um, so the people who are there have already done more work to, to get there. So um, I, would, I would be willing to bet that you're going to see a lower conversion rate getting in, but a higher retention. Um, you know, people who are downloading your app and keeping on their home screen are people who, for whatever reason, have decided this is something I'm going to use frequently enough where the lower friction, the lower response time, the fewer taps to get in, that where that is outweighing um, the work they had to do to get that. So, I, I, you know, that's something where I feel like, you know, the, the, the presence of friction is something that you can sort of reason about independently of potential statistics. So, again, you know, if your mobile experience is worse than your mobile web experience, then it'll go the other way. But I feel I would feel pretty confident in making decisions based on that theorizing. Thank you so much, Aaron and Lisa. Thanks. No problem. I hope it helps. Thank you. Oh, you're muted. <laughs> oh, um, I need to Thank you guys so much. Um, if you guys can drop your um, any ways to reach you in the chat, so all the attendees could have it, like your email, Instagram, you know, whatever. Um, sharing and um, yeah, thank you guys so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Uh, this is great. No, this was really fun. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.